Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Decoupling from China to the extent that we can and the pace at which we can on the economic front has become a major issue. This is our nightmare scenario where Russia and China come together and together they're in a conflict with the West. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, Dr. C. Raja Mohan, a long-standing and highly respected analyst on India's strategic direction, joins Professor Rory Medcalf in conversation. His visit to Australia has been made possible by the Asia Society Australia. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the elders past and present. Welcome to this special episode of the National Security Podcast, where we welcome a truly distinguished visitor to the studio from India, uh, an old friend uh, of Australia and a, a friend personally, uh, Dr. C. Rajamohan, uh, currently uh, Senior Fellow with the Asia Society Policy Institute in Delhi, but of course, uh, a long-standing uh, and highly respected analyst on India's strategic direction. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thank you, Professor Metcalf. Wonderful seeing you again. I've known you a long time and we've worked on, I guess, uh, similar issues over the years. We've worked on issues related to strategy, the Indo-Pacific, the global order, uh, the future of Australia-India relations. It's been such an evolving landscape. And I I recall meeting you, I think, for the first time uh, 22 years ago, around about this time, October 2000, in a very different set of circumstances, not so long after the Indian nuclear tests and, uh, in my view, Australia's overreaction to those. So you've been a very close watcher and advocate of relations between India and Australia over many years. And that's a story that I think sits within that larger strategic change that India has undergone. How do you read, uh, first, the uh, the Australia-India evolution, that really extraordinary story between our two democracies? It's tr- truly remarkable that uh, how things have changed between India and Australia. As you said, you were there, uh, you know, when we were going through a very bad page, uh, patch uh, in 2020, post-1998, when India conducted its, its nuclear tests. And we've come a long, long way. I mean, I would even say, uh, besides the U.S., uh, Australia is perhaps one relationship that has really, truly transformed in India's engagement with the world. It's it's really all-encompassing uh, partnership today. Uh Today, for example, when I was flying into Sydney, the other, you know, yesterday uh, from uh, from India, from Delhi, uh, there were two flights almost at the same time. Uh, one Air India flight coming into Melbourne and one Air India flight coming into uh, into Sydney. Both were direct flights. 
uh, it really tells you the level of engagement uh, today that uh, there are you know far greater connects today i mean between the two of us in terms of just the number of people traveling and part of that is related to the growth of the indian diaspora which is really i mean close to 800000 i believe uh, in australia today uh, which has become a, a living bridge between the two sides i mean even more important uh, I, i would say is the 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 previous limitation i mean we just talked about curry and cricket but today i think uh, we have a free trade agreement uh, limited as it is but the fact that we have a serious commercial relationship uh, we have a defense and security partnership uh, that today between india and australia uh, we're also part of uh, the quad uh, along with japan and the united states so we're doing things today uh, which were seen as impossible 20 years ago because we really agreed on nothing during the cold war there were attempts by different australian leaders uh, to really connect with india but each time the cold war logic kept separating us but today for the first time i would say our shared interests uh, we're also colonial cousins as you know i mean there are a lot of things we inherited from the british uh, those are in synergy with the uh, contemporary international environment uh, uh, therefore i think today uh, this is really with the beginning of shall we say a beautiful relationship my sense is this is just the beginning uh, of a of a truly expansive partnership uh, that is going to unfold so we've spoken a little about the australia india relationship and how it's uh, it it's grown so dramatically uh, it's strengthened in terms of trust and confidence and and practical cooperation and i would agree with you that that goes in in many ways hand in hand with a changing strategic environment with the changing priorities of the international order um i would recall myself that uh many of the issues that um the indian security community was concerned about in the 1990s and the early 2000s issues to do with uh uh terrorism uh, issues to do with china uh actually now of course have come to dominate the global security landscape so that countries like australia have in a sense followed india uh in recognizing these these problems but it would be useful to position this in understanding where is india going where is india itself coming from uh, we can come back to the australia india thing uh in depth a bit later on but what do you see as india's trajectory as a strategic actor uh is it uh towards some kind of leadership in the international system is it more limited than that is it away from non alignment uh how would you define india's path i would say three big changes i mean to understand where india is coming from the most important thing i would say is the economic transformation i mean through the cold war i mean india was also very inward oriented um, its limited exposure to the global economy uh, you know i think prevented india from really uh, uh, playing a leadership role despite its claim leadership of the non aligned movement the third worldism etc but the economic weight i mean through the from the 1950s we had actually a relative economic decline of india uh, from where it was uh, just after the decolonization this is because of the kind of policies we pursued but after 1990 the tentative reforms that began in, in the 90s the results of which i think successive governments have reformed the economy in different ways but today uh, it's have been impossible to imagine in, in 1990 uh, that india is already well on its way to become the third largest economy 
Uh, if you look at, uh, you know, purely, I'm talking about uh, absolute numbers. Uh, today, we are uh, just overtaken Britain uh, in the nominal per, uh, GDP, aggregate GDP. Uh, it's a matter of time before India overcomes Germany and eventually Japan. So by the end of this decade, I would say uh, India would be the third largest economy, a distant third uh, to US and China, but nevertheless, the third. So I think that is a huge transformation, the nature of India. Second, I think uh, what has changed is also the India's understanding of the world. I mean, I think uh, through the era of non-alignment and Cold War, steadily we got into a very defensive mode, uh, a, a mode in which India was kind of fending off uh, threats from the rest of the world, uh, rest of the region. So it was one of, uh, shall we say, in a cricket metaphor, playing defense mm. uh, on, a, on a sticky wicket. That was the attitude. But today, uh, India is playing on the front foot. Uh, there's much greater sense of uh, self-confidence and, and a sense that, look, India can do things. It can take leadership. While leadership was a glint in the eye in the 50s for Nehru, today I think the growth in India is absolute size and it's growing partnerships uh, with the U.S., with the U.S. allies, uh, with a range of other, other countries gives India a lot more room uh, to really exercise leadership. The third aspect of it, I would say, is that India's a footprint globally has changed. That there was a time when we used to think of diaspora as a as a brain drain. Uh, but today, the fact that you have four and a half million Indians uh, in U.S. leading the tech industry, uh, if you see, it's really most of the Indians, uh, professionals, where do they go? They go to U.S., U.K., uh, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. So in a sense, the, the relationship with the Anglo-Saxon world, the English-speaking world, where Indians are making big contributions. So I think India is not just a territorial entity, but it has a, a, a global dimension today, which I think gives it connections and networks uh, across the world today, which I think have provided a basis for India uh, to imagine uh, what used to be a prickly relationship with the English-speaking world. Uh, today, I think, is beginning to transform into a, into a collaborative uh, relationship. And finally, I would say within the neighborhood, uh, while the British Empire, the Raj, was deeply connected uh, under the colonial rule, uh, India's uh, socialist enterprise, we cut ourselves off from our own neighborhoods, whether it was the Gulf, whether it was Southeast Asia, whether it was Africa. Well, there was political solidarity. There was very little economic solidarity. But today, I think, uh, the outreach to the Gulf uh, has really changed. India is one of the big customers for Gulf oil. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have become major partners for India. Uh, similarly, we look at uh, Southeast Asia, we look at Central Asia. So I think India's engagement with the sub-regions of what we call the Indo-Pacific now has significantly grown. So, so I think all in all, I would say this really, I think, uh, for India, this is really the beginning of a, a new phase where economically strong, a more self-assured self elite and the new immense possibilities globally. How would you define the the interests and the principles that that animate Indian policy in in, in, in this new world? I mean, you've given a sense of the scale of Indian um, ambition, the uh, the growth, uh, not not always spectacular, but sustained of Indian uh, wealth and power. Uh, but what are the the interests and principles that you think will then drive the policy behaviour in the world that will follow? See, in the past, we used to define, you know, India's identity in terms of non-alignment and more recently in terms of uh, strategic autonomy. But I always argued that both these concepts really, in a way, confuse the issue. So all large countries, I mean, uh, you know, 
seek autonomy. So it's not some unique Indian attribute. Uh, even small countries seek autonomy, even within alliances, uh, within their capabilities and circumstances. I think what has changed in India is that the non-alignment and strategic autonomy were arguments that were used to prevent engagement with the West. Uh, that today India is no longer defensive. That 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 it uh, it's not going to let the ideological argument about non-alignment, not to do things with the U.S. or with the or U.S. allies in Asia. Uh, today, I think the the understanding that look, India as a large country will have an independent foreign policy. So India is never going to be a treaty ally of the United States. It's not going to be like a Britain to the United States or a Australia or Japan to the United States. The relationship uh, is. Uh, is one that as a as a large country that's going to build a relationship on the basis of a, a negotiated terms of engagement. And I think fortunately, I would say for India, the US understands that today. So the US is saying, look, we're not just looking for more allies. We're looking for capable partners who can work with, with the US on the basis of shared interests and principles. And that's where I think today, uh, India and the US, uh, in spite of the skeptics, both in the US who want to see a greater alliance and in India, those who are worried about mm-hmm. getting too close to the US, we've made such major progress. And I think central principle is there are shared interests and India is willing to pursue those shared interests, a shared interest, whether it is balancing in Asia, whether it is constructing a more rules-based order in the international system. Today, I think there is a, a much greater convergence. Uh, so I would say uh, in India that is close to the West, but not, you know, an ally, but is going to work with the West uh, to, to reshape the international system. So I can, to say in the Cold War, we were non-aligned, but tilted to uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, today, I would say, we are an independent foreign policy that is closely uh, engaged with the, with the West. And I think there's a, there's a subtlety in the way you engage with this uh, that, that, that's very welcome. There's, there's often been a simplistic view that either India is fully in a, uh, a non-aligned camp or that is India, as India becomes closer to the United States, that somehow there'll be a, a fantasy of India being a, a fully-fledged member of the so-called West, and the West is actually a term that, um, that that I don't use. I think, from an Australian perspective, it's not always um, the most helpful way to to um, articulate our uh, alignment in the international system. But but even so, your point is that there's a convergence of interests uh, that it will be on terms that India independently negotiates, and that this is a very substantial departure from the India of well, what. The pre nineteen nineties second half of the twentieth century is that that's a reasonable way of exactly, summing it up exactly yeah. and, and and I think uh, partly that uh, the because of the economic change today I think there's a much greater sense of uh, uh, self uh, confidence uh, much greater sense that we can we can engage the world on reasonable terms that it is not about keeping the world away from India but this is about actually India going out. And uh, working with the world, because today, uh, given the, our, our economic interdependence, I think with a, a $3.5 trillion economy, the trade is more than a trillion dollars if you put goods and services. So we're connected to the world in multiple ways. So therefore, shaping the world uh, is the is the big uh, big change that is, that is unfolding. I mean, again, to go to the cricket metaphor, I mean, you could be like a Dra- Rahul Dravid playing defense, or you could be uh, Sehwag, someone who's going to you know play on the front foot, uh, reach out to the world. So I think that is a big shift 
that is that is taking place and you correctly characterize it and i'm hoping that at least uh, many of our australian and indian listeners are going to understand those analogies to uh, to cricket and the uh, the long game of um of strategy uh, that india is playing in the world i will come back to you a little later on to perhaps challenge you on a few of those points related to a rules-based order because, of course, many friends of India are watching this year uh, the way uh, the Indian government has responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But let, let me come back to that. I want to stay on that question now of India's new strategic direction and begin looking at some of the other relationships that matter in this space. And of course, we're, we're recording this um, this conversation in uh, in mid October 2022. We've just seen the spectacle over the weekend of the uh, uh, the effectively coronation, I would say, of uh, the Emperor of China, if I can put it crudely. Uh, the India-China relationship is um, front and center, I would argue, of the challenges that India faces in its strategic environment. How do you? read the development of that relationship? How is India managing that contest? No, I would say, you know, China is going to be India's principal uh, challenge. It's not just a challenge that we can meet overnight or the coming decade, but I think it's going to be a generational challenge. Uh, because what has changed is still about the 80s, uh, you could see India and China were roughly at the same level, uh, aggregate GDP as well as uh, per capita incomes. So I think the three decades of China's growth in partnership with the West, with the U.S. in particular, I, mean, I think has dramatically transformed Chinese capabilities. And Chinese economy, Chinese GDP today is almost five times larger than India's. And Chinese defense spending is four times larger than India's. So the gap between China and India has, has emerged in a, in, a, in a big way. So and I think dealing with this gap, uh, uh, is is become uh, the main challenge for India because uh, you know in the past we we believed that somehow India could befriend China you know going back to the 1950s and even after the 62 war we thought look India and China as Asian countries must exercise solidarity with each other and that befriending China is a fundamental obligation of a Asianist uh, foreign policy of India but I think thanks to Emperor Xi in the last uh, three years, uh, the series of military crises on the border, including the one on 2020, have India have shook India out of complacence, the belief that uh, that China can be a long-term partner, uh, that China has you know you, you know uh, you know undid 30 years of agreements to keep the boundary peaceful and tranquil. And uh, it kind of shatters the confidence of India completely in China. So it's not just a question of what is the nature of the dispute. That itself is large. But the fact that it was completely willing to disregard, you know, formally negotiated signed agreements. So I think has woken up India to, to the reality of Chinese power. And the Chinese claim that they're simply taking what belongs to them and that they have a right to unilaterally change borders. Until now, we saw that happen uh, in South China Sea, vis-a-vis um, -vis Taiwan, vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong. But today, in the case of India too, uh, it is trying to do the same. So therefore, this, I think, has woken up the Indian elite, Indian security establishment. So there are two ways in which India is going to deal with it. One, what political scientists call internal balancing, that India needs to grow, India needs to strengthen itself internally. And second is to partner with the, with the U.S., 
uh, Japan and Australia and other in Europe uh, in order to do these so-called external balancing. So, so I think both have become uh, a main lines of foreign policy. Here, I think India, of course, uh, it's not everyone agrees with this in Asia. India's decision to walk out of the regional comprehensive economic partnership, while Australia and Japan are still part of it, uh, India uh, came to the conclusion that, look, by being part of a Chinese economic sphere of influence, actually India uh, is going to further lose its manufacturing capability. Uh, therefore, uh, it is it must uh, fundamentally withdraw from that and try to uh, reshore manufacturing within India, rebuild its manufacturing capacity. And many have criticized this as protectionism, walking away from free trade. But my sense is uh, this is not the self-reliance of the 1970s where India kept out foreign capital, constrained domestic capital. But what India sees without manufacturing, a large country like India cannot simply make progress. While Japan is superior to China and technologically, and it could build a trade relationship. And Australia uh, uh, had its own complementarities with China. But for India, the contradictions have become really sharp on the economic front uh, as well. And the trade deficit is continuing to balloon. So therefore, decoupling from China to the extent that we can and the pace at which we can on the economic front has become a major issue. And then on the military front, we have posted uh, 50,000 troops in at 14,000 feet in the Himalayas. They've gone through two winters. So I think the, it's a reality. You know, It's unlike many ask, what is India doing? Uh, but we are the only ones who are actually face-to-face -face with the Chinese troops. Uh, on a daily basis, uh, you know, kind of uh, dealing with their, with, their, with their potential for aggression. So I think that's where we are. My sense is on the economic front, on the security front, the challenges from China are real. And third, China has also been the principal block to India's aspirations uh, globally. China is the only country that does not support India's claim for a permanent membership uh, of the Security Council. Uh, China has blocked India's entry into the nuclear supplies group. Uh, China uh, constantly tries to undermine India's position uh, within the region. So the, imag the imagine imagination of the 1950s under Nehru and the imagination of the 1990s was India-China can work together on the multilateral front despite the differences on the bilateral front. But today, uh, on, we are as far apart on the multilateral front uh, as we are on the on the other bilateral bilateral issues. So I would say India's contradiction with China is, is substantive, serious, and I think dealing with it is going to drive many of India's policies. And I assume that that uh, influences, for example, the the many strategic partnerships that India has been building, whether it's with the United States, whether it's with Japan, whether it's with Australia, whether it's the Quad or France or a whole range of others. I mean, how does the China factor play into in, into those relationships? No, I think it is a central to to all these uh, all these relationships. Uh, the the fact that uh, India uh, revived the Quad in nineteen uh, sorry in two thousand seventeen was a consequence of the military crisis in twenty seventeen on our border. Then we had uh, the twenty twenty crisis. Uh, and we've seen this uh, rapidly building up. Uh, Americans were interested, actually, in the Quad, but India was hesitant till 2017. And since then, we've seen uh, the fundamental change in India's India's uh, approach. On the economic front, uh, because of the problems on the China trade front, we are now negotiating trade agreements with Australia, uh, started with the UK and Europe. 
so, so they're on the trade front too. On the technological side as well, uh, India is now looking to work with the Quad members, with the US, with Australia, to build domestic technological capabilities, be part of the resilient supply chain. So I would say most of the major initiatives are directly linked to the China challenge. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. There are several other dimensions in in my reading to uh, India's perspective on China. There's the attitude of the Indian people, uh, and of course that can't be simplified in the way that uh, the Chinese Communist Party likes to talk about the feelings of the Chinese people. India is, mm. uh, you know, extraordinarily um, mega-sized democracy, if, if, if you like. Uh, all democracies have their flaws, but uh, India has no short of public opinion. There's also that point you made about almost respect as a civilizational peer. And one thing that's always struck me is that those who want India-China coexistence or those who even argue that somehow India and China can can together um, dominate a new Asian order um, should begin their conversation by asking Beijing to respect India that way. How do you feel about, uh, or how do you perceive, I should say, both of those issues, public opinion in India and the, the civilizational dimension? Exactly. I mean, I think, as you said, uh, this idea that, look, we had a shared civilization uh, and uh, going back to the early part of the 20th century, this great idea of, uh, you know, Asia standing up to the West, uh, Asia solidarity, uh, Asian unity. These were the big ideals, both the Indian nationalists, Chinese nationalists, uh, even in Japan, in uh, across the region. I mean, people believed in that ideal. And I think that ideal drove India's policy uh, in the 50s. But the 62 war, uh, where we saw the territorial dispute trumped it. And again, uh, in the 1990s, the fear of the unipolar domination of the United States once again said, look, we need to work together. India and China need to work together. But I think it became clear that, look, China has its own ambitions. Though China today uses the slogan, Asia for Asians, uh, it is about really making Asia secure for Chinese dominance. So I think we've been cured, if you will, mm. <laughs> of the Asianist romance. Uh, that today, I mean, I think uh, uh, even our foreign minister, uh, Dr. Jaishankar, has often, you know, recently said, look, uh, that there are cleavages within Asia. Uh, none of us, we don't have between suddenly China and India, do not have a common understanding of where Asia should head, how should territorial disputes be resolved, how should economic relationship be organized. So this notion, uh, many, in, you know, in Southeast Asia continue to raise as if it is East versus the West. 
But within the East, there are contradictions. And I think what China has done under Xi Jinping is to sharpen those contradictions by disregarding the sensitivities of its large neighbors. After all, China, uh, Japan and India, the two of the largest neighbors. And with both the countries, uh, China's approach has been one of uh, bullying and, and uh, attempt to dominate. So the Chinese use the rhetorical device of Asia for Asians, of Asia and the East standing up against the West. But operationally, the challenge for a large number of Asian countries is how do you deal with a unipolar moment in Asia? This, I think... I think India has woken up to this fact. Our problem is not American-dominated unipolar world, but of actually a potentially a China-dominated Asia. And that's the reason why today, working for a multipolar Asia, working, recognizing, in fact, our uh, Minister Jayashankar said, US is a, is a, and Australia resident powers in, in the Indo-Pacific. And we're going to work with them to produce a stability in this part of the world. So I think that's a huge shift from the Asianist ideology to one of actually uh, believing more universalist conception rather than one of a narrow uh, self-serving concept of Asian unity that the Chinese today promote. Look, thank you. That's quite a compelling way to move to the the multipolarity of the region and look at some of these other relationships uh, important both to India and to Australia and to put them in their, in their context. Uh, I think there is often that um, that oversimplification, in fact, that, that gross distortion that, that, that Asia equals China uh, and that somehow engagement with this region uh, equals privileging China's interests over, uh, over those of others, uh, when in fact, not only India, but, but others, uh, Japan, Indonesia, Vietnam, we've got this extraordinary diversity in the region. How do you see some kind of... Uh, manageable multipolar order developing in the Indo-Pacific? Uh, what would you see the roles of India uh, or indeed of Australia in encouraging that? And I think this this uh, simplification of East versus the West, Asia versus the uh, West, uh, I think we're beginning to go beyond that. And uh, the important thing is not producing Asian unity, but but of actually creating norms and rules for Asia. And I think one of the central problems of Asia has been territorial disputes. Uh, that under Deng Xiaoping, I mean, the where Deng said, look, let's keep the disputes aside. Let's work together for peace and development. To one where we've seen the transformation under Xi Jinping, to one of saying, look, this is about China reclaiming its territories, China reclaiming glory. And it is simply rest of the, the countries have to simply uh, uh, adapt to this new reality of China's rise. But I think as, as a large civilization, I mean, India India just simply not going to accept it, uh, will pay the price for standing up to China. Uh, my sense is uh, Japan uh, uh, too, I mean, I think is has woken up because Japan has a far deeper uh, uh, historical relationship with China. But today, Japan is building up its defense capabilities. And Australia uh, too, it's doing that. I think we, where we have work to do, the Quad members, mm. is really in engaging the rest of the region, uh, which actually uh, Southeast Asia, for example, benefited greatly from U.S.-China cooperation over the last four decades and has integrated itself deeper into, into China. But today, uh, China becomes assertive and U.S.-China differences uh, and China's differences with Japan and India come to the fore. They, I think, are being tempted into a neutralist positions, despite the fact that it is China that is ch changing territorial status quo, that it is China that is assertive. There is a 
a fear of offending China. There is a fear of standing up to China. So therefore, I think for India, uh, Australia, Japan, and the United States, and we need to offer alternatives, whether it is the Belt and Road Initiative or whether it is security cooperation, that unless we provide those alternatives, the danger of neutralism, uh, in fact, many of my friends in Southeast Asia talk the language of India of the 1950s, which is we, we, we are non-aligned. We don't want to take sides between US and China or India and China. But the fact is, it's not a question of uh, neutrality here. It's a question of who is violating the rules. Uh, so I think this, uh, given the power gap between US and its uh, many of its Asian neighbors, and given China's growing uh, uh, economic influence, that it is going to be hard for that region. So therefore, I think the, one of the purposes of court would be uh, to reach out to them, to engage with all these countries and say, look, we are here to support your sovereignty. This is not saying that you join our side against China. Uh, and I think that's where I would say the, the Biden administration, I think, has figured this out. So there is greater emphasis on helping China's neighbors to become more sovereign. I think this is a different way of approaching this rather than in the past we used to say with us or against us all this is about rivalry this is really about that China's periphery should have the capability uh, and the sovereignty to deal with a strong power it's only that will encourage China to abide by the rules and and I think that's where uh, we're saying all the right things now the question is we need we have the hard work of actually convincing our friends in Southeast Asia uh, or in the Pacific Islands in your case, uh, or in the case of uh, in South Asia in our case, we need to reassure and offer alternatives uh, to uh, to our friends so that there's no neutralization, but, but they would support a broader framework of a rules-based uh, regional order. There's a real consonance there in the principles you've identified uh, about offering alternatives, about strengthening the sovereignty of uh, small and, and, and middle powers. There's a real consonance, I think, with some of the thinking that the new Australian government is uh, is putting into policy now, uh, the new priority being placed on Southeast Asia by our, our Foreign Minister Penny Wong, the um, the sustained and expanded uh, step up, if you like, in the Pacific. And so I think it's it, it's intriguing to think of how Australia and India and others can perhaps work together in those in, in, in that regard. Uh, you and I have done work in the past on, for example, uh, trilateralism, the Australia-India-France uh, relationship with, with French colleagues, and I think pursuing and generating uh, much of the thinking behind that framework. Australia-India-Indonesia strikes me as a relationship that needs uh, a lot more work. I know that you know that, that there are dialogue mechanisms, uh, but that's the kind of relationship where I think the the core strength of our countries could really um, combine. What's your sense about the the prospect for Australia and India to work together in some of those arrangements? Absolutely. I mean, I would say I mean we need to do a lot more. Uh, France is a is an Indo-Pacific power. We need to uh, collaborate more with them. And I think uh, fortunately we've gone past that uh, crisis in bilateral relations between Australia and France. And today we've resumed that dialogue. Uh, with Indonesia, uh, where it has actually uh, been far harder to to come to concrete. So I think that reflects the broader challenge in uh, Southeast Asia as a whole, that uh, uh, we need to go beyond the mere expression of dialogue. And, and I think we need to really, uh, you know, 
focus more on you know strengthening each of us each one of our bilateral relations with these countries and then to draw them into supporting principles that help their own cause uh, this is where i think uh, we see japan doing something for example japan today talks about uh, enhancing the capacity of its regional partners i mean providing them with uh, uh, greater maritime capabilities uh, so that is that is one way and australia too uh, does a lot of things uh, in the region it's coming back into south pacific uh, helping them to create their own national capabilities uh, we have given alternatives whether it was undersea pipeline in some cases uh, or of uh, you know redirecting the aid uh, in a way that uh, you know meets the aspirations of the of the local local people and in south asia too there was a time when india used to keep us and its allies out of the reach wanting to keep but today we are coordinating with with the us with australia to stabilize the subcontinent so i think we need to find a more intensive ways of uh, coordination uh, collaboration in these regions and within that uh, engaging you know it's not simply dealing with asean as a whole but but to coordinate our policies in such a way uh, that the strengthens the hand of each country uh, within the region to be able to deal with the uh, chinese power and chinese uh, uh, capacity to to bend their policies and it sounds to me that when you speak of indian engagement across the broader region uh, you don't subscribe to the view that somehow there can be very neat lines drawn where China dominates uh, East Asia and India dominates South Asia and they keep out of each other's way. I mean, what's your, what's, what's your view of that kind of theory? No, I, I don't think, uh, forget India. I mean, Chinese don't buy that. I mean, they see themselves today as equal to the US. I mean, they're in Latin America. I mean, they're overfishing in Galp- Galapagos Islands in South America. And all over the Indian Ocean. Yeah, yeah. And they're in the South Pacific. They're everywhere. So, so I don't think they're looking for a deal with asian countries they benchmarked against the us they say look they would like to nudge the us out of asia uh, and tell the us look we are open for an accommodation uh, that uh, let's work out principles in which you stay out of our waters and if you but, need anything just give us a phone call but you stay out of waters being basically the entirety yeah, of asia yeah, and much of yeah, the indo pacific yeah. so well. so i think that you know it's not so within that they think the rest of asian neighbors they're too weak they they think they can manage it on their own but keep the americans away this where i think finally the us has woken up to this and today it is trying to strengthen its uh, forward presence so uh, for india i mean the idea that you can cut a separate deal with china whether in the himalayas or in a regional framework or in the global mm-hmm. all three illusions have been shattered Uh, on the himalayas where the chinese violation of the territory you know of the border agreements uh, within the region where chinese are looking to expand their own influence and uh, and uh, globally where the chinese are setting up their own idea of a global uh, you know security initiative global development initiative so they're not interested in you know sharing power with anybody in asia so as i say there's only one tiger on the mountain and i think that's our that's our problem and this where the left Uh, groups whether it's in australia in the us and they i think labored under the illusion somehow china is more open to accommodation i think under xi jinping uh, is is become much harder to sustain that argument i think what we our left lab, you know friends whether it is labor in the in the in, in the in australia or liberals in europe or in the us or in india look china wants to be a great power on its own terms so this for this notion that somehow china can be persuaded by being nice to them 
to accommodate your interests. I think, unfortunately, uh, just uh, that is not working. So the need is we have to produce a balance. That's the only way to get the Chinese to accept some shared rules. Therefore, balance must be the principal uh, objective. I mean, this is not about a permanent confrontation with China or of containment of China because China is too big. So I think we need to persuade China. It's, they're better off collaborating, cooperating with the rest of the region and with the major powers rather than exercising unilateral dominance over the region. And I think balance or equilibrium or however you want to put it, it's interesting also that this is actually beginning now to transcend um, political ideology in a, in a lot of our countries. So, for example, a uh, recent guest on this program was one of the most uh, influential Green uh, Greens members of the European Parliament uh, uh, on on China, arguing that, uh, in fact, in many ways, the left in Europe now is recognising the China challenge, a threat to its um, to its political values. And I think a similar, a similar journey is happening in this country. We've talked a lot about China, and I can't conclude the conversation without turning back to, to Russia, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, because you did make the point that um, the the violation of the rules in the Indo-Pacific is one of the fundamental reasons why countries like ours have, have, have difficulties with the way China's using its power. Of course, one could say the same on a um, on a more grotesque scale at the moment, looking at the invasion of Ukraine when it comes to Russia's behaviour in Europe. Um, there's been plenty of commentary about India's position with regard to this, India's um, historic relationship with the Soviet Union and then with Russia, India's reliance on Russian weapons and energy and so forth, and, and frustration from some friends of India uh, about the, um, the reluctance India's had to, to really confront this. How would you define Indian thinking on Russia's behavior in Ukraine, how it's evolving, where is this going to go? No, there's no question. I mean, I think uh, the Russian violation of uh, basic principles of sovereignty, which are so dear to uh, all countries, but especially to developing countries like India, where uh, territorial, territorial sovereignty is so crucial. I think the problem for India has not been uh, recognizing the problem. It is about finding itself between a rock and a hard place, as the Americans say, is that we don't like what the Russians have done, but we are in a relationship with Russia, which is the weapons uh, relationship. And with nearly 60 to 70% of the inventory, while we buy now a lot more weapons from the US, Israel, and others, the accumulated inventory of the last 60 years of the relationship means that uh, India cannot simply... uh, break out of that uh, of that relationship, especially when it is in a war with with China, warlike situation with China. So therefore, I think this is where I think India is in a sense trapped of its historic dependence on Russia for weapons, uh, confrontation with uh, with China at this point, and the the West and China and and Russia uh, locked in a locked in a conflict. So this is really uh, probably the most. Uh, Unfortunate scenario for India because ideally for India, a Russia that is at peace with the with the US and Europe will make it easier to 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 produce a better balance in Asia. But unfortunately, this conflict, I mean, makes things much harder. Uh, I, I would say India, I think, has begun to adjust its position because it knows the longer term effects of this, and that you've seen uh, Prime Minister Modi in the Samarkand summit of the SCO raising questions about the war. Uh, and our Minister Jaishankar in the UN are uh, talking about the need to 
that you know uh, that we got to restore the respect for sovereignty uh, territorial integrity etc but i think the the answer to this uh, is really twofold i mean i think one how do we reduce india's dependence on russia and there i would say uh, india is doing now unlike in the past mm. it's emphasizing domestic production of weapons here the americans i think have been very forward looking they've said that look we want to help india uh, you know build its own domestic uh, defense industry that is a positive side and my sense is uh, this will take time but i think at least now there is a beginnings of a process where india can reduce its dependence uh, on uh, on 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 russia so i tell my friends in india that look you keep talking about strategic autonomy today india's strategic autonomy is constrained by russia and russian actions in europe today constrain india's freedom of action but how do we overcome this here my sense is the us administration has been shown significant understanding they're willing to see india's problem and are willing to help india move beyond this but looking more broadly i would say beyond defense there is well a little trade between india and russia oil of course we mm. buy that's really a, you know that's really an opportunist uh, market based thing india's trade with bangladesh today is higher than trade with russia uh, average trade you know annual trade with russia is around 10 billion dollars our trade with the us is 160 billion dollars our trade with europe is around 120 our trade with china is again fairly large at around 100 billion dollars uh, so so the the logic of india's economic relationship is increasingly with the us with europe and with the uh, english speaking world uh, and that is i think will have a longer term effect yeah. on how this uh, will will so work. there's so there's a journey if you like with regard to india redefining its interests uh, in in relation to russia is that reasonable yeah absolutely and i think in this in the level of people to people relationship there was a time when india the, the left parties were very strong there were deep intellectual Uh, ideological connections to russia a lot more people traveled up and down but today uh, where do indians travel i mean they're traveling uh, to the west where do they want to migrate to they want to go to the english speaking world so there's very little people to people connect what you have is the overhang of a government to government relationship in a narrow sector of defense uh, and that's all there is to the relationship so i would say to all our friends i mean look russia is, is about our past mm. and the lingering effects of that past on our on our on our foreign policy but our future uh, is with the us and its allies and friends uh, in, uh, in 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 the world and i think that's where we are headed but then the path to transition from one framework to another i think particularly on the particularly on the defense side will take time and i think we need i think at least we're seeing a lot of understanding of this from the government side Uh, in in Washington. So I mean without sort of betraying confidences would you say there's there is a realization or a sense in the Indian system that in the future if there's a confrontation with China and India relies on Russia for rapid resupply of weapons and that's going to be and munitions that's going to be an extraordinary vulnerability is that is there an awareness of that growing in the Absolutely. Indian system? Yeah, exactly. I mean I think if you see the 2020 conflict I mean the first thing we had to go to the Russians to make sure the invent that they would bring in the supplies but we also saw in that conflict actually the us provide a lot of assistance uh, intelligence sharing uh, winter clothing uh, you know uh, uh, drones uh, all these really helped us so my sense is there is a recognition that a growing partnership between russia and china which we saw unveiled by president putin and president xi uh, is going to make things worse for us 
because this is our nightmare scenario where actually US and uh, sorry Russia and China come together mm-hmm. and together they're in a conflict with the west so for us i think ideally uh, russia should have been at peace with the west they're not ideally we would like to see russia play an independent role in this part of the world that i think increasingly will become difficult therefore i think for us how quickly can we make the transition away from russia how do we expand our freedom of action by reducing our dependence on russia i think that has become uh, a, an important uh, strategic imperative today before we finish i want to ask you two questions that have a, a nuclear tinge to them and I think it's um it's appropriate given that I think when we first met we were we were dealing with the aftermath of um, India's own uh, uh decision to to publicly declare its nuclear capability now I'm, I'm not talking nuclear weapons here for a moment I'm talking nuclear uh, propulsion I'm talking about submarines I'm talking about the AUKUS technology sharing arrangement uh, Australia is developing with the United States and the United Kingdom how is that seen in India my sense is india was quite uh, supportive of the aukus uh, though they did not issue many public statements we had our minister recently say look india has no problem with aukus in fact uh, at the uh, international atomic energy agency where china was trying to campaign that uh, you know aukus violates uh, non proliferation treaty uh, india worked with the with its partners to to prevent uh, that kind of a resolution uh, going through the iaea so for us i think uh, it is really a stronger australia that that given china's military capabilities it's going to be increasingly harder to deter china through the old means that is the us extended deterrence alone that is would would help deal with the china challenge therefore you need greater capabilities to its partners Uh, and that's the reason why my my sense is US and Japan are talking about creating new capabilities in Japan and Japan itself is going to double its defense spending and is looking at ways in which it can create what is called the counter strike capabilities you know 10 years ago Japan was not interested nor the US would have supported that in the case of Australia I mean again uh, equipping Australia to play a larger role in producing what we call now integrated deterrence is as important Uh, that as as building up rebuilding japanese and similarly the us wants to strengthen india's defense capabilities and it is also willing to assist large number of other countries so therefore my sense is in the past we framed the nuclear issue in very simplistic terms india has to talk about disarmament uh, australia has to talk about non proliferation and all the everything was related to the npt but today we we realize look a a a, a legalistic narrow interpretation of the uh, of the non proliferation framework uh, does not serve the interests of either us japan australia or india for example uh, the north korean challenge the us has liberalized the rules of the mtcr missile technology rules to make it easier for south korea to build capabilities to deal with the north korean threat similarly i think aukus actually it's not just about nuclear propulsion there're going to be other technologies so the key question is back to politics that there is a real threat from china and this requires a new approach where uh, technologies that were seen as uh, completely protected the us is sharing it with australia uh, and that the need uh, under the integrated deterrence framework you need capabilities uh, for your friends and partners so that there is a local capability that adds to the deterrence of china and i think this is the way that that has to go because there is a rise in chinese power uh, and the us physical distance from the region demands 
greater capabilities for its local partners who can develop some what we call in situ deterrent capabilities. So I think this is a, is a good forward-looking step and that it doesn't then, there's an argument we made together. You can't just rely on the current uh, political fashion in, in, in the US uh, or the goodwill of China to produce peace in this region, that we need local capabilities, which is where I think the US has taken the right step, uh, building its allies and partners' capabilities. That's a really important point. I think the um, the misperception somehow that um, Asia collectively is against AUKUS when you know the uh, what is becoming the most populous nation in Asia and uh, one of the the top three powers globally in many senses uh, has a more sophisticated view is is quite something else. So thank you for that. Before we conclude. Uh, nuclear weapons, uh, nuclear deterrence, and of course, one of the um, the shadows and the concerns about Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the the role in which uh, nuclear weapons may potentially play as, as the conflict develops. Um, can you talk just briefly about what you see as the future of nuclear deterrence globally, and how do we ensure that these weapons are never used? The Russians, I think, have really complicated. Uh the, the discussion on the nuclear deterrence by raising the threat of the use indirectly. They've said it. I mean, they've said it frequently, but uh, in somewhat uh, 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 you know, oblique terms. But the reality, I think, finally we're beginning to confront that a nuclear armed power, you know, undertaking territorial aggression against a neighbor and then trying to use nuclear, you know, threat to prevent a restoration of the status quo. So this is something China could do as well in the region. Therefore, I think we need one, uh, uh, the need for greater nuclear deterrence. Like if Ukraine had nuclear weapons, you could you know, say Russia would have never done what it is doing. That doesn't mean you arm everybody with nuclear weapons. But I think my sense is you need stronger uh, capabilities, conventional capabilities of the countries that are on the borders of Russia and China. Uh, you need to better link the U.S. deterrence, uh, nuclear deterrence, to the regional deterrence. While the NATO framework, that's what it does, but you didn't have, uh, Ukraine is not part of NATO. So then how do you reassure uh, the countries on the Russia and China's periphery of deterrent benefits of nuclear deterrence? Uh, and then to strengthen conventional deterrence as a way of you know, that the escalation ladder can be expanded, that it isn't, we're not jumping from, you know, a, a, you know, simple use of artillery to use of nuclear weapons, that, that the capacity to expand that. And finally, I think I would say it is really in the end, this is about politics, that the cost to, uh, whether it's Russia or China, uh, in threatening to use nuclear weapons to suit their expansionist aims, there, I think the costs, political and economic costs, that's where the sanctions and other instruments come. Uh, but combining all this, and this is where I would come back uh, to the notion of integrated deterrence, which is, uh, again, figures in the U.S. national security strategy. They've been talking about a lot. And I think this is where uh, I think those who are seeking to a, a, a rules-based order, uh, we must now all work together on the concept of integrated deterrence. And how do we... Uh, constrain the use of nuclear weapons, especially by those who, uh, you know, revisionist, revanchist powers. I think that is a, a major intellectual challenge because until now we framed it in narrow technical terms. This is all about 
you know, technical nature of the nuclear weapons. But today, uh, the integrated deterrence model, I think, offers us to think about this politically, uh, think about this far more uh, strategically rather than the technical nature of nuclear weapons. There's so much more we could talk about, but you've been incredibly generous with your time and your insights today. Uh, it's always a, a privilege to um, to share uh, assessments with you. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, on the National Security Podcast. Uh, and I would note that uh, your visit to Australia is supported by our friends at Asia Society Australia. Uh, thank you, Dr. C. Raj Mohan. Thank you, Professor Metcalf, for having me. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.